David and I were married. We got married in 88, and we had some family property that we lived on, and it was long story, but ended up we were going to lose the property, and I got extremely nervous, did not know what to do or where to go. So I was thinking in the back of my head, we're going to lose our home. So in dire needs, I went and did some things I should not have done. When I worked for the city, I was would receive um, bills from everybody for their water and whatever. So I thought I could take some of that money and eventually put it back. And that's not how it worked out. Within a couple of months, the guilt was just way too much. I couldn't handle it. So I went and told David. We went to my boss's house and told him what had happened. And he desperately wanted to keep it under wraps um, because it was a city and small town and things get around very quickly <laughs> but within three days the entire county knew what i had done i was um what my husband so sweetly calls mullet wrap i was on every paper there was for quite some time we knew we'd have to pay restitution but we weren't sure if i'd have jail time or not um, a lot of people in the county that we thought were our friends we're backing for jail time. I lost probably every friend I had except for maybe five. I was, thought we were, we weren't even sure if I was gonna be able to give birth to Grace at a hospital or in jail, we, we just had no idea. I was on the brink of suicide at one point. I was pregnant with Grace and I just knew if I took my life, God would take her to heaven and I was okay with that. You know, I don't have to stretch my imagination too far to think about being in that place. The thought of losing my home, a place where my kids rest peacefully at night, that basic necessity of shelter. And if I'm honest with myself, I imagine I would go to just about any length that I could to make sure it didn't happen that my kids would constantly have a place to call home, that my wife would have a place to call home, that I would be able to provide protection for my family. And so it doesn't seem like that big of a stretch to be in Sandy's shoes. I think a lot of us find ourselves in situations like this, in maybe not necessarily her situation, but in similar situations where we put ourselves in between a rock and a hard place, right? Something comes up against us, something we weren't expecting, something we weren't ready for, and we go at it with everything we have. We put every resource we have into it. We make plans, we take actions, we make decisions, and it's all to get rid of or to fix the problem we find ourselves in. And as Christ followers, I think that's our very first misstep. Because the first thing that we should be doing is going to God and saying, God, what do you have for me in this? What do you have for my family in this? What's your plan? What way do you want me to move forward? But we react from our guts and we go in guns blazing. And a lot of times is what happens is we take that hard situation and we turn it into a hopeless situation. We just don't know what to do next. If you're new with us this morning, this is probably not the encouraging Father's Day message you were expecting when you got in here today. But you found yourself right in the middle of our Hopeless series. And here's the fact. We all find ourselves in hopeless situations at some point in our lives. It doesn't matter who we are. All of us hit a point where we can't go any further. 
We don't know what to do. We don't know who to turn to. We don't know how we're going to get out of this. And so we have been spending the last several weeks looking at how God says we can move out of hopelessness. What actions can we take? What can we do? What do we see in the lives of the people in our Bibles and the lives of the people around us that help us move out of hopelessness? My name is Evan. I'm on staff here at Epic. And so this morning, I'm going to help us walk through a story in the Old Testament from King David. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Um, It's early in the Old Testament. It's not somewhere you go real often. So I'm going to give you a second to turn there and give you a quick synopsis while you find 2 Samuel. David is the second king for Israel. Saul was first Uh, Israel had asked for a king, and so Saul gets put in uh, as king, and he turns out very quickly to not be God's man. He's not going to do what God needs him to do. He's going to take Israel down the wrong path. And so God steps in and says, look, you don't get to stay where you are. And he anoints David as the next king of Israel. And David is a young boy when he's anointed as king. He's a shepherd boy out in the field. And when God sends Samuel, his prophet, to anoint David, he calls David a man after his own heart. What sort of heart must a guy have to be told that he has a heart like God's heart? Like, I want that. That's absolutely amazing. And David proves it out early in his life. He's humble. He's obedient. He's forgiving. He's loving. He gives God credit for everything that happens to him. But like every single one of us, David's human. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David finds himself at a decision point and he stumbles. And he finds himself in a hard situation. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab, that's his main general, and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looks out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent messengers to get her, knowing full well now who she is and the fact that she's married. And she came to the palace, and he slept with her. And so David, in a moment of weakness, falls prey to his own desires. He figures, I'm king. I can get away with what I want. Everybody else is out of town at war anyway. So who's going to find out? My servants aren't going to tell anybody. Bathsheba certainly isn't going to tell anybody. So we're going to be okay. But no story ever ends up that way. The next verse, we find out Bathsheba discovers that she was pregnant and sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. We have a situation what are we going to do? And David immediately begins laying his own plan on how to get out of this. I can only imagine what he was thinking about. Here he is, king of Israel, and he figures, I have to hide this because no one can look at me as their leader and go, okay, if he's going to be morally corrupt, then how can we trust him to lead us as a nation? So he's got to save his own name. He might have figured, I've got to make it look good because every nation around us is looking to go to war with us. And they just are looking for a reason to call us out. And if they find out my weakness here, what are they going to think of me as us as a nation? What are they going to think about the God that we serve? And so I just have to hide this so that nobody finds out. 
He might have even thought that he was doing it for the good of Bathsheba. Because in the Old Testament, the penalty for adultery was death. Now, they weren't going to kill David. He was their king. But Bathsheba, probably there was a good chance that when they find out about this, she's gone. And so David may have told himself, I've got to protect her. It's not her fault. I brought her into this. I made this decision. And so maybe he thought that he needed to save her. Whatever reason it was, David goes at this full tilt and he begins to take action. So he sends for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, brings him back in from the battlefront and says, tell me how the battle's going. Uriah says, it's going great. We're right at the city walls. We're ready to take the city. And David says, that's fantastic. Uriah, you are one of my greatest soldiers. I can trust you to do anything that I need you to do. You're always there for me. And so while you're here, why don't you go home? Why don't you take a night off, enjoy the comforts of your house, see your wife, spend some time with her, and then go back to the battlefront? So he sends Uriah off. He gets up the next morning, and he didn't count on Uriah being such a stand-up soldier. Because when he wakes up, Uriah is still at the palace. He slept in the servants' quarters. David says, why in the world are you here? I gave you the night off. I told you to go see your wife. Uriah says, look, everybody else that I know is out at war. How am I in good conscience going to go and spend some time with my wife, take a break, when they're all risking their lives for our country and our God? David figures, okay, I'm not done yet. He brings him to his house, or the palace that night. He gives him food. He gets him drunk. He sends him off and tells a servant, take him home. And he figures he's good to go. He wakes up the next morning, and Uriah somehow found a way to stay at the palace and stay with the servants. And at this point, it's starting to look bad because Uriah is one of the main soldiers, and so he's got to send him back or it's going to start to look a little suspicious. So David sends Uriah back to the battlefront, but not before writing a letter for Joab and giving it to Uriah to deliver. And he tells his general Joab, he says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to put Uriah right at the front of the battle lines. And when everything is at its worst, you're going to pull everybody else back because David has gotten desperate enough at this point to kill in order to hide his shame. And that's exactly what happens. Uriah is put right on the front, right at the city gates. The battle gets terrible. Joab pulls his men back and Uriah, along with several other good soldiers from the Israelite army, all die. And we find out just a little further down in that chapter that when Uriah's wife had heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And when the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace and she became one of his wives. And then she gave birth to a son. And so at this point, we're what? A year or so down the road and David figures, okay, we got past this. It was a little bloody, it was a little messy, but we took care of it. Nobody's the wiser and everything's gonna be all right. But how many of us know that it is really hard to hide sin? Somehow the truth always comes out. If you have been the parent of a toddler, at some point in their life, they've tattled on themselves, right? Somebody wrote on a wall, somebody broke something, somebody lost something, and they let you know that they did it, even if they didn't mean to. Or maybe better yet, how many of us as kids know that our moms knew everything we did, no matter how hard we tried to hide it, right? We knew that we had cleaned up, we had taken care of things, and somehow mom knew not just that I had done it, but that it had even happened. When I was 20, one of my best friends turned 21, 
My parents were out of town, and I decided we'd celebrate his birthday at my house. And <laughs> you can't laugh yet. <laughs> and so my buddy, the 21-year-old, went out and got a couple of packs of beer, brought them back to the house. And this is not one of those we blew up and the cops showed up and everybody was arrested kind of things. It really was. There were four of us. There were three packs of beer. We watched two movies, and everybody went to bed safely that night. Um, but I knew that it was not okay to do because one, I was underage, so I knew that I shouldn't have alcohol. The other thing was that in our family we didn't have alcohol at the house. My parents didn't care once I got old enough to do what I wanted to do. But at that point, we didn't drink alcohol in the house. We didn't have alcohol in the house, so I knew my parents wouldn't be okay with it. But I figured, hey, look, nobody's in town. We're not going wild and crazy. I get to celebrate my buddy's birthday. Everything's going to be okay. Knowing that it wasn't right, I had to have a plan. And so there was a, a trash can in the center of the kitchen, and the rule that night was: when you open a bottle, you pop the cap, it goes in the trash can. You go and you have your beer. When you're done, it comes back and goes in that trash can. So I knew where all the evidence was. I wrapped it up that night. Take it outside. The next morning, garbage guys come. They take the evidence away. For good measure, I clean the house from ceiling to floor. I move couch cushions. I get underneath furniture. I dust stuff that hasn't been dusted in 10 years just to make sure that everything's hidden. Everything looks great. I'm good to go. My parents come home from out of town. It's great seeing them. We have dinner together, and I go to bed. And when I wake up the next morning, there is a single bottle cap in the center of my dresser in my room. I don't know how, but I had missed that bottle cap. And my mom, the first night she's home, found it. And instead of talking with me and lecturing me and telling me how terrible it had been. All she wanted to let me know is she knew what had happened, and she wanted me to know that I knew that she knew that it had happened. <laughs> she never lectured me. She never yelled at me. We never—I don't think we talked about it until like ten years later. But I never did it again either. <laughs> it is impossible to hide sin because sooner or later the truth comes out, and even when we think. That we've gotten it past our friends and our families. Maybe we've even lied to ourselves about it. God still knows what happened. In verse 27, Bathsheba gives birth to her son. David thinks he's okay, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Even when he'd been able to hide it from everybody else, God still knew. When it happened, and he knew that this had to be dealt with, so God sends his prophet Nathan to go have a conversation with David, to confront him with what had happened. And Nathan tells this parable. He says, "Look, there are two guys in town. There's a really wealthy guy on one side of town. I mean, he has everything his heart could desire: fields, flocks of sheep, herds of cattle. He wants for nothing. And on the other side of town." Is a poor guy barely scraping enough together to provide for his family, and that guy has a single lamb to his family's name, and they're not even raising it for food. They raise this lamb like it's one of their own kids. It eats out of his hand. It drinks from his cup. It sleeps in its bed. His kids play with it. He raises it like his own daughter. Now one day, the wealthy man has a visitor from out of town travel in. 
And unwilling to touch any of his wealth, he goes to the poor man's home, takes his lamb by force, slaughters it, and creates a feast for his traveling friend. And David barely allows Nathan to finish his story when he lashes out at what's happening. David in chapter 12 looks at Nathan and says, as surely as the Lord lives, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one that he stole and for having no pity. David is incensed. He can't believe that this injustice has happened. How many of us, as we deal with the guilt of whatever it is that we're dealing with, start pointing the finger at other people and saying, look at what they're doing. Make sure that they get what they deserve. Make sure that judgment is in its right place. Make sure that they pay back what they took. We take what we know we deserve and we try to push it on to somebody else. And I imagine that's what David is going through. He's been stewing for a year in the guilt of not only his adultery, but in murder. And as Nathan confronts him with it, he is ready to lash out at absolutely anybody to try and make himself feel just a little bit better. Nathan looks at David and says, you are that man. This was your story. This is your sin. He goes on to tell David, God gave you everything you wanted. You've got Saul's kingdom. You've got his lands. You have his wealth. God just handed it to you and he would have given you more, but you decided to take for yourself what you wanted and then tried to hide everything that you had done. And David is cut to his core in this moment. He knows that what he did was wrong. And he looks at Nathan in verse 13 and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. He knows that he has to come to grips with his own sin and to repent in order to get out of this situation, in order to move out of hopelessness, to begin that journey forward. He has to do something. Now in 2 Samuel, this is all recorded very quickly. It's a concise telling of the story. But David dealt with his guilt and with this idea of repentance heavily in Psalm 51. So there are Psalms that he writes of praise, Psalms of worship, and there's this Psalm of repentance. And repentance is this word that we throw around in church all the time. You might've heard it in Sunday school growing up, but I wanna make sure we have a very clear understanding of what repentance is, what it looks like, and how it helps us to move forward. So David writes this psalm, and we're just going to read through a, through the verse, a few of the verses and get an idea of what repentance is for David and what it is for us. So in verse 1 of Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. He goes on and on, recognizing the fact that he has done something wrong. And that's our first step in repentance. We have to recognize that we have sinned, that we have done something that we shouldn't have. In verse seven, David writes, purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. So beyond the recognition, David asks for forgiveness. He says, God, I can't negate what's happened. I need you to forgive me of my sins. I need you to cleanse me of this. I need you to make this right. 
But then he takes it a step forward and we move from just asking for forgiveness to true repentance. In verse 10, David writes, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Basically, he says, look, I know that I've messed up. I need you to forgive me, but then I need something different inside of me so I don't wanna go do it again. And that's what repentance is. True repentance is a change in our minds, a change in our hearts, and it results in a change of action. It results in a new way of thinking. It results in a new way of living, a new lifestyle. When we repent of something, we're asking God, hey, I want you to take my heart, my mind, and change it so that I don't want to go down that path anymore. I want to go however you want me to go, but I never want to look that way again. That's what true repentance looks like. And that's what David has to do in order to begin to move out of hopelessness. So here's the hardest part about repentance. Repentance does not mean that we get to skip out on the consequences of our decisions. And this is one that I struggle with an awful lot because God knows our hearts. He knew David's heart. And I would imagine he knew very well that David was truly repentant. He knew that David was sorry for what he, was, he had done and he never wanted to do anything like it again. And if we look at back in 2 Samuel, David confesses to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, that's right. And the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. He doesn't get to miss out on the consequences of his decisions. And it plays out. Nathan returns to his home. The Lord sends a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food. He laid there day and night. And on the seventh day, his son, his firstborn son, dies. Now it is hard to understand the heart of God in this, that an innocent child loses his life because of David's sin. But it is a sobering reminder that our sin doesn't just affect us. It affects the lives of everyone around us. And more often than not, it tends to affect those we love the most and are closest to us the hardest. When we are in the wrong, when we have sinned, other people pay those consequences as well. Now, why does God let this happen? Right? This is the crux of it. Why do we have to continue to deal with the consequences? And I think it's twofold. I think the first is for our own benefit, which sounds a little weird that we have to deal with these things for our good. But if you think back at the series we just finished, we just got done with a parenting series, and Trent spent a week talking about godly discipline of our children. Why do we discipline our kids? So that they learn never to do that thing again. If we don't discipline our kids, then they never stop writing on the walls. They never stop breaking things. They never stop hitting their brother or sister because they don't need to. If there's no repercussions for what they've done, they just keep doing it. And then they can just say, I'm sorry, and then keep going. As adults, we need the same thing because we are stubborn humans. 
And so when we fall into sin, those consequences remind us later in life that, you know what, I never want to go through that situation again. I never want to have to feel that way again, to live through that again. And it is a reminder that there are physical, real consequences, the decisions that we make that help us stay away from wanting to do that thing ever again. So it's for our benefit. It's also a little less obviously for the benefit of other people. David writes something very interesting in that Psalm, in Psalm 51. He says, I will teach my, your ways to rebels and they will return to you. If you will forgive me for the shedding of blood, O God who saves, then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. And that's him saying, God, forgive me so that I can tell other people about your forgiveness. Grant me mercy so I can tell other people about your mercy. We all have a story. We all have a history. We all have a past. And what we normally do is gloss it over. We polish it up. We do our best to hide the really bad stuff and make it look like we've all got everything together and we know exactly what we're doing. But when we honestly and authentically share our stories and those hard moments that we really don't like to think about with the people around us, those people learn from our stories. They learn from our consequences. And my hope would be that when I share my story with somebody, that they would see that and go, okay, I don't want to make that mistake. I can learn of God's goodness and his grace and his mercy through his story. And I never have to actually experience the consequences of what he had to go through. And so when we suffer the consequences and we have a story like that, when we share it with the people around us, they get to learn about God and how good he is through us. Back to Sandy's story. Sandy had the courage to share her story with us. Haley and Rick have had the courage to share their story with us. And I am so grateful for it because we get to learn about God through them. And so let's finish up her story and see how she has handled the consequences and what God's grace has looked like to her. I thought that I was in a great relationship with God until the day I tried to take my life. And that day, it was over abundantly clear that he was right there with me. So I, I remember that day like it was today. I can tell you what I was wearing, what was going on, who came to the house to find out why I wasn't answering phone calls, the weather, everything. So that's the day that I really realized that I needed to start living for God and not myself, not for money, not for things, anything like that. Losing hope in friends is, is um, very hard, but the shame and the guilt that comes with what you've done, even to this day, is still overwhelming. Repenting is very hard. It's turning away from a sin and not going back to it. In this situation, that was a cut and dry case for me. I never go back to anything like that. Um, but the daily struggle of repent is what's extremely hard. You've got to live with what you've done, with your shame and your guilt. And it's, to me, it's very easy for me to forgive people because I always wanted to be forgiven, but to forgive myself, <laughs> that's very hard. Well, I was supposed to pay it back within 15 years. Um, 
We paid it back in 10 because I needed to be off probation. I could not go anywhere. Um, we paid the balance off, had to go back to court and ask if I could be off probation. And just to, you know, at the beginning, nobody would talk to me. And at this 10-year court date, I had 20 or 25 people in that courtroom as a witness for me. So I was able to get off of probation early, which was huge. So to see those people support me was huge because not only did I speak to them about God throughout all of this to all my probation officers, um, one of them came to know Christ through it. So um, it's extremely humbling because for years, could see myself um, putting Jesus on that cross for years because he died for our sins and that was one of my sins of many <laughs> um, so when you realize deep down that he died because he knew you were gonna screw up like that it's overwhelming his grace is overwhelming <laughs> We learn some amazing things about ourselves and about God when we're in the middle of a hopeless situation. Sandy talked about the fact that she found the true meaning of God's grace and mercy because of what she had to go through. And I think all of us become most aware of God's grace and his forgiveness and his redeeming love in our darkest moments. And I think because of that, there, that is the reason why we tend to go through those darkest moments. It's not just because you've got somebody up in heaven playing chess and putting situations into play and just, oh, watch them all run around. We learn amazing things in the midst of those situations that we would never learn in any other way. Sometimes repentance is our first step out of a hopeless situation. Like David had to come to grips with his sin and repent to God of what he had done in order to begin finding a way out of the darkness. Sometimes repentance is our way to begin to get out of our hopeless situation. Sometimes our hopeless situation is what leads us to true repentance. God will use those moments to change our lives. And no matter how painful it feels on this side of things, it is nothing compared to the pain of being separated from him for eternity. And God will allow us to go through those moments, to suffer those feelings, to deal with those consequences if it means that he has an opportunity to step into our lives, if we give him freedom because of it. And so sometimes our hopeless situations are what allow us to turn to God and say, I can't do it anymore. I don't have anything left. I have nowhere else to turn to. I have nothing left within me. So God, I need you to step in. My challenge this morning is what do you need to repent of? Looking at your life, Looking at what you're in the middle of right now, is there some sin that you're currently dealing with that you know the only way I get out of this is to repent? 
Is there some habitual sin that you go back to? Maybe it's not something in your life right now, but you know a couple of months or a year down the road, you come up against that hard situation, and what are you going back to? That same thing you go back to every single time. You need to give that up to God today. Do you need to ask God to step into your life for the very first time this morning to repent and say, God, look, I know I have screwed up. I have sinned. I have fallen short. And I need you to step in because I can't do anything about that. What do you need to repent of this morning? In just a minute, we're going to sing one more song together. The worship team is going to come out and lead us in a song called Come to the Altar. It's a beautiful song. talks about bringing our pain our sin, our burdens to God. And you don't have to do it by actually coming to any physical altar or physical place. You can do it right in your seats. But this morning, as we sing this song together, I want to encourage you to give it up to God. Ask him to step in, to give you a new heart so that you never want to go back to that thing again. So let's give God just a couple of moments to work in our lives. Let's ask him to step in. And let's give him some space to work this morning. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would change us today. Some of us are dealing with lifelong situations. Some of us, Father God, are dealing with something that we stepped into yesterday. Father, whatever it is, I pray that you would help us to look at our hearts and our lives honestly and openly. And Father, that we would be willing to recognize that we can't do this on our own. We can't forgive our own sin. We can't change our heart. Only you can do that. And God, this morning, I pray that you would make that abundantly clear. And Father, give us courage to be ready to accept the change because change is scary. Change is hard. So Father, this morning, I pray that as you work in our hearts, that you would give us courage to accept what you are doing and to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing this last song together. So the really good news is that David, or God doesn't want us to stay mired in that hopeless situation. If you look a little further into David's story, God takes this terrible thing and creates something beautiful out of it because the next son that's born to David in Bathsheba is Solomon, who becomes the next king of Israel. God doesn't want you to just sit in this feeling of guilt and stay right here where you repent. He wants you to walk forward with him. And that is a great, great thing because God's path and plan for each and every one of us is so much better than anything we could put ourselves into. And so I want to encourage you, whatever you gave up this morning, whatever you asked God, turn me from this and give me a new heart, then take a step today away from that thing. Ask God for courage and strength, but walk out of here knowing your life is forever changed by our great God. Thank you so much for being here today. Have a wonderful week. Come back next week as we continue your series. Have a great Father's Day, guys.